Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. Just three years after the American Revolution, rebellion stirred once more in Massachusetts. When state debts became too great, officials demanded that backcountry farmers pay their dues at once. With foreclosures skyrocketing under the weight of crushing taxes, Revolutionary War veterans took up arms once more. No taxation without representation was back in a big way, and under the leadership of Daniel Shays, the rebellion threatened to end the American Republic in its earliest years. On this episode, we discuss Shays' Rebellion. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 6 of the series, we're discussing American rebellions, the competing voices, the winners and losers that help shape the modern United States of America. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, or by searching Wartime Podcast. You can join our Facebook page. The conversation's always growing. We post helpful maps and imagery to help understand the episodes better. Facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer. Please join us. You can visit my author's website, BradyKreitzer.com, for updates, news, and events. We have a lot coming up here in 2017. I look forward to meeting you. And, of course, your home for everything wartime on the web a place you can contribute to the show and keep this wonderful history going and available to everyone, wartimepodcast.com. On this next series of episodes, in fact, the next three episodes, we're going to be moving forward with this story of rebellion. And we're going to look at some of the more surprising issues that develop in a period we commonly think of as a rebellious period. Of course, I'm talking about chronologically the American Revolution. Now, there's no doubt, the American Revolution is the biggest and greatest rebellion of them all. Maybe the Confederate Rebellion of 1861 uh, is a close second behind it. But most people don't understand, and we did a whole season on the American Revolution, exactly what went into the drive toward 1776. It wasn't about empires, it wasn't about separation, At the very beginning, the American Revolution was about ideas. A lot of different people fought the American Revolution for a lot of different reasons. And as we talked about in Season 1 of Wartime, the New England colonies, the Middle Colonies, the Chesapeake Bay colonies, and the Southern colonies were all very different entities flying under the same flag. What could bring them together? What could be their common cause? Because there wasn't a lot in common otherwise. That was the power of 1776. But the question we now face is what happens after 1783, after the American Revolution ends? You've won the war. Now can you keep the peace? Most people think after the founding of this country, 
Again, 1783, the official end to the American Revolution. That we somehow just got on with our lives. That the great Republican experience uh, was something that was protected uh, and naturally progressed forward from there. But the reality is, that's not the case now. And it certainly wasn't the case in 1783. Ideas made this country what it was. We have elections every four years. Those ideas aren't always the same. So what would you think if I told you that within 10 years after the end of the American Revolution, you have not one, not two, but three different rebellions trying to end the American experiment or in the minds of the people that participated, defend the ideas that brought forward that great age of liberty, 1776. We are very much a work in progress. Uh, We still are. We always will be. That's the hallmark of our system. We have the greatest system in the world. I firmly believe that the American democratic system uh, was the single greatest uh, innovation in human history in terms of bringing people's life to a a more productive and fruitful existence. Uh, I firmly believe in the experiment of democracy. I think it's the best way of doing things. I think the American system took the great ideas of the Enlightenment in Europe and put them into practice. No mistake. No mistake. The Enlightenment is a European phenomenon. I won't fight you on that. But here in North America, it was shown to work. It was put into practice. And that is our greatest export. I have no apologies for that. And I won't apologize for that. Uh, But... The last thing we want to do is make it seem like it was easy or it was cheap because it wasn't. And that's what the next three episodes here in season six of Wartime are all about. You know the story of the revolution. Go check out season three. It's all there. Uh, What you need to understand next is what happens after the revolution. So let's dive in and really jump into our first topic. By the way, it's a good time to note Uh, If you are listening uh, live in 2017, we're moving into the spring and summer. It's cold now in January. We'll be there soon enough. And I am booking dates for public appearances, book signings, and lectures. So if you're part of a historical society, uh, if you're part of a uh, history advocate group, if you uh, work for a small museum or a large museum, uh, and you'd like to host an event, visit the website wartimepodcast.com or bradykreitzer.com and shoot me an email. I come cheap, that's the good news, and I guarantee your uh, your guests will uh, have a wonderful time. So reach out to me. I am booking events for the summer of 2017 and beyond, and I'd love to hear from you. Okay, so where are we going to go? Whenever I think about the wars after the American Revolution, one comes to mind right away. And it's a very fitting one uh, because it takes place in the colony, now state, that started it all, Massachusetts. Now, what's the big deal about Massachusetts? Well, uh, if you know about the history of the American Revolution, season four, again, you want to check out, uh, you will know that Massachusetts is the colony that is really the thorn in the side of the British Empire from the beginning. Uh, You have the Boston Massacre. You have the Boston Tea Party. Before that, you have the Stamp Act riots. 
This is a localized Massachusetts phenomenon that will be exported to the other colonies around it. This is where it all starts. This is the ideological capital of the spirit of 1776. So it makes a lot of sense. After the revolution, if the people who fought that war previously in defense not of a king or a country but an idea, would continue to fight the war if they felt their ideals were not being met uh, to the level in which they believed. So let's talk about that. Massachusetts is an interesting place. To the British, it will be, again, troublesome. They'll view Boston as a group of rabble-rousers uh, who are uncontrollable, who are people that you cannot negotiate with or reason with, uh, and they couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, I saw a person recently say that uh, riots have been part of American history from the beginning, and the most famous riot of them all, the Boston Tea Party, is an example of that. Now, that gave me pause. You know, FYI, it was a political Facebook post, okay? Um, and it was one of those times when you want to write something and you sort of type it out and take a you know three deep breaths, then you delete it because you just don't want to deal with the aftermath. That's the world in which we live in. But the Boston Tea Party was no riot. Uh, it was done in an age of gesture politics. That's what we call the 18th century, when you do things for very specific reasons to send very clear political messages to your intended audience. The Boston Tea Party was a very good example of that. It was not a riot. It was not random. It was a calculated symbol. Uh, the men went on board those tea ships and destroyed tea and tea alone. That was the gesture. That was the symbol. Uh, one man on the ship broke a lock. He was forced to replace it and pay for it out of pocket. Another man tried to steal some of the tea. Uh, he was stripped naked and forced to walk home. This is December, by the way. Uh, in the streets of Boston. Because, again, the people who were behind the Boston Tea Party were trying to send a clear message. The idea and the principle was far more important than a mere destruction of imperial property. You want to talk about a riot. The Stamp Act riots of 1764, now that's a riot. Um, but the Boston Tea Party was not. Anyway, getting back to the story, we're going to be dealing with 1785, 1786, and 1787. When you think of the reasons for fighting the American Revolution, especially in Boston, one word comes to mind for me, and it's taxes. Taxes, taxes, taxes. Again, season four, we do a whole episode on the myth and the realities of no taxation without representation. But the idea of a foreign government usurping a person's liberty in the form of a tax, whether it was a reasonable tax or not, because a lot of them, in my opinion, were, um, didn't matter to the people of Massachusetts. It was the symbolism of the revenue increase, of the taxation, that really drove them to rebellion. Well, in 1784, 1785, and 1786, they find some pretty shocking things about liberty. Uh, and I guess you could say caveat emptor, uh, or, in another phrase, be careful what you wish for, you just might get it. After the Revolution, uh, the average citizen of, of Massachusetts, uh, now free people, right, in the United States of America, sees their taxes go up ten times 
what they were when they were British colony. So the taxes that drove them to rebellion, separation, and war, they win. Go up 10 times after they get their independence because, hey, freedom isn't free. They're not happy about that. They're angry about that. Farmers in Massachusetts fought that war on the basic principle of taxation and its equation to liberty. Uh, their taxes go up dramatically. And it's true, and there's reasons for it. After the revolution ends, we don't have a constitution. But the event we're going to talk about today will take us to that point. The governing uh, document, the legal framework of the United States of America after the American Revolution was a series of agreements between North and South, largely uh, known as the Articles of Confederation. It was the first framework of government we had, and it was not effective. The entire thought process behind the Articles of Confederation were driven by the fear of an all-powerful central government. Massachusetts fearing that especially. Now you can imagine where these people are coming from. They're fighting a war against an empire, a king, a parliament, even more, overseas, telling them what to do, interfering with their lives, even though they aren't a part of their lives. So when the American Revolution ends, all of these founders, all of these framers, if you would, uh, have this, to some degree, some worse than others, overarching fear about a centralized government. So the Articles of Confederation are drafted that gives virtually all power of this new United States to the individual states and very little to the uh, centralized government at that time in New York City. That's what we're working with. It is a states' rights uh, bonanza. And while it sounds really good in the beginning, it does not necessarily lead to a, a cohesive development of a real country. I mean, the United States of America after the Revolution, under the Articles of Confederation, was much more like the European Union today than the United States of America today. Each state was effectively its own country. It had an executive, they had their own legislatures and capitals, and that was the way it was viewed. The central government had so little power, they couldn't even raise an army. They couldn't raise taxes equally on all states. They couldn't, therefore, pay down debts equally on all states. Uh, the centralized government was incredibly weak, uh, to the point that Native communities who lived in North America referred to the United States as the 13 fires because there was no one fire for them. There was no one capital. They were 13 different entities. The, the event we're talking about today, Shays Rebellion, is going to prove to the entire country that that system has to go or we all go down with it. So let's go to Massachusetts. In Massachusetts, more than any other colony, more than any other state, you see the crippling and dire effects of a crushing debt. Remember, different states came into the American Revolution at different times. While some of the New England states were fighting from the very beginning, therefore their debts would be the greatest, we know today wars still cost a lot of money. Many of the southern states didn't come in until the end or towards the end of the American Revolution, so their debts are considerably lower. Massachusetts, as ground zero for the American Revolution, 
is very much uh, beholden to its debt. And this kind of leads you to think of the American states like a chain. Remember what you always say about a chain. You're only as strong as your weakest link. Well, here's a case where you have different states with different degrees of debt. And it doesn't matter that Virginia paid off a lot of theirs. Or all of it. Uh, what matters is Massachusetts is buried in debt and not going anywhere. So after the revolution, you wanted a free country. Now you have to deal with the realities of that. And the realities of that are paying down this debt. So how did the state of Massachusetts, formerly the colony of Massachusetts, elect to do that? They voted in the legislature. They voted in the governor. And that group, on behalf of their people, elected to pay off the debts by raising taxes on farmers um, and sending that money overseas to the people that it was owed to. Now, much like the previous discussion we had about the regulators of the season in North Carolina, there was a big divide in the state of Massachusetts between East and West. The people of Eastern Massachusetts were the mercantile class. Uh, these were your Bostonians. This was Plymouth. This was Salem. These were people who made their money trading goods back and forth uh, in the enormous and profitable harbors along the Atlantic seaboard. In the West, it was a different story. These are your yeoman farmers. Uh, these are the people that will be breaking into, if not representing, the new middle class in America, if you can call it that. Certainly not like ours today. And these are the people that mostly fought the revolution. The revolution can be, I think, easily uh, stated uh, as a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. They said that about the Civil War first, but I think it applies here too. And those animosities, that East versus West, that city versus country, urban versus rural divide, will be very present in the new uh, early national period of the United States of America in the 1780s. When the taxes go up, many, many farmers in the West begin to suffer. How much? This is an almost unthinkable figure. Uh, but about one out of three farms in Massachusetts will be foreclosed on after the Revolution. One out of three. I think the figure is 31% of farms after the Revolution the men who fought in the war, the men who died in the war, will be foreclosed upon because they can't pay their taxes. Now today we might say, well, they're delinquent. They can't pay their taxes. We can't feel bad for them. But what really drove the yeoman farmers of the West to anger and animus and eventually open rebellion is not going to be the fact that they can't pay these debts that they owe to their creditors in the eastern part of the state. It's that their creditors in the eastern part of the state have made laws and changed laws that they feel uh, unjustly and unfairly works against them. And that's something we really need to talk about to understand the event that will become known as Shays' Rebellion. The way colonial America typically worked, and then the early United States of America after that, was that there was a very big disparity between the countryside and the city in a lot of ways, but one of the biggest was in monetary policy. 
people in the cities, people on the coast, uh, like to spend hard currency. That's what we'll call it. By that I mean coins, gold, and silver. You could take that, you could sink your teeth into it, and you knew the value of those goods. People in the countryside, people on the frontier or the backcountry, mostly the agrarian class, had very little access to hard currency. So whenever it came to affairs involving transactions within states or colonies before that, most people in the east, in the cities, were very comfortable uh, taking foodstuffs, supplies, or the products of the yeoman farmer's estate and farm uh, in lieu of gold. So it was a fair and equitable marketplace. No, I can't give you X amount of money in gold coins, but I can give you X amount of pounds of wheat. And that would be a fair exchange. And again, it, it worked in a closed situation. Um, to make up the difference, sometimes... Uh, paper money would be printed in the East, which would be sent West, which, you know, most people were okay with, but it was a little bit flimsy because, again, even today, the money in your wallet isn't really worth anything. I mean, it's worth $1 worth of gold or $20 worth of gold if that's what you have. It's worth something else in a bank somewhere. That's why inflation happens sometimes. The value of paper money can fluctuate, but Gold is gold. It stays right where it is. Um, and I'm being paid to say that. I know a lot of people... I should well, I should be paid to say that. Radio shows sell you gold left and right. Uh, I'm not. But I'm saying, you know, it's been around forever for a reason. Um, but this is what happens in Massachusetts. There's this equitable nature between East and West. You can't pay us in hard currency, gold and silver coins. Give us grain or corn or barley um, in exchange, and, and we'll be just fine. Where Massachusetts gets into trouble is that the foreign overseas creditors who lent money to the state are demanding repayment after the revolution. They aided the revolution. They gave you money. They gave you a chance. They deserve to have their money paid back. But the problem is they aren't going to accept, you know, buckwheat or, uh, or corn in, in lieu of cold, hard, precious metal. So this causes the economy of Massachusetts to really uh, to really turn itself on its head. You have this sudden and thorough demand for repayment of debts. You have creditors in the state demanding hard currency from the farmers, and they don't have it. So that policy... Uh, is one that many, many farmers in Massachusetts say unfairly puts the burden on them. They, they're fully willing to give you, you know, $20 or $30 worth of wheat, whatever they owe. But if you don't accept grain anymore in lieu of gold and silver, well, there's nothing you can really do about it. Now, you should be asking, this doesn't happen until 1786. Why isn't this a problem in 1784 and 1785? And the reason is because the governor of Massachusetts understands this is a serious problem. The governor of Massachusetts in that time is a man named John Hancock. You know that name. It's the biggest one on the Declaration of Independence. John Hancock was one of the richest men in the colonies, one of the founding fathers uh, of the Continental Congress. 
and one of the uh, earliest and best governors of Massachusetts. He understands most of these farmers are veterans. Most of these farmers are good for what they owe, but they don't have it in hard currency. So, in his time as governor, Hancock will not really push the issue of collecting this money uh, from these farmers. And then, once you hit about 1786, John Hancock starts to see the writing on the wall. The big banks in Europe, in France, and Amsterdam are demanding their money. And he sees these farmers are going to have to come up with some gold and silver somewhere. So he bolts. He resigns his position. He retires from public life. And he vacates his office as governor of Massachusetts. When that vacancy occurs... It's what spurns everything into place because the new governor, a man named James Bowden, will turn his back on that forgiving policy of Hancock and he'll demand payment immediately. Early on, the veterans of the American Revolution, at least most of them, are angry about this. They begin to say things like, we went to war with Britain over the issue of taxes. And now our taxes are higher than ever before. On top of the terrible debts owed, the American Revolution, and this is countrywide, was an economic disaster initially for the people involved. Average income dropped. This is no joke. This is not a figure I'm making up. This is not a figure that I choose to believe in. Alternative facts. Uh, I guess that's a word. That's a thing now. Uh, this is a real fact. Uh 30% drop in income after the revolution. So from 1775 before the revolution to 1783 after, your income dropped on average 30%. That is an economic shortfall that even stable, old, established countries couldn't survive, let alone a brand new one. So on top of all of that, you have... Uh, a national economic crisis, you have an immediate economic crisis in Massachusetts, and you have a lot of guys who picked up a gun once and fought already for what they believed in. It doesn't matter who's taxing them. A tax is a tax is a tax. And if they believe it to be unfair, if they believe it to be unjust, they're not going to stand for it. Early on, uh, these angry veterans of the revolution before the rebellion begins in Massachusetts, uh, believe that they can change the state within by using the system. Whenever there is a foreclosure coming that has to be decided in a court of law, uh, many of the townspeople who are angry will show up in a big mob, surround the courthouses, and actually physically not allow uh, the judges and the magistrates into the building. The tax collectors can't get into the building, the defendants can't get into the building, and the way that the foreclosure is prevented is by literally not allowing the court session to take place. And that happens all over Massachusetts. And early on, these people that are disaffected and dissatisfied find that to be an actually really effective way of dealing with these problems. That's not a solution, keep in mind. That's a short-term stopgap measure. But it does, when it comes to life or death, saving a person's family farm from being taken from them by the state government, it makes all the difference. 
Again, I think it's really important to stress, we've talked about a lot of violent rebellions that were straight-up insurrections in a lot of cases this season. This is one where people put their faith in the system first. Aside from blocking courthouses, again, a very short-term measure, many, many people begin letter-writing campaigns and... Uh, and correspondence uh, with the state legislature of Massachusetts in August of 1786. And they're hoping to get their elected officials to understand the dire situation which they find themselves in. And they give the legislature an entire session to deal with it. And they're waiting every day to hear how has our elected officials, people who now work for us, it's our state and our country after all, How are they dealing with this? Sure enough, the session of the Massachusetts legislature ends. Not a single law was passed, and not a single person even brought up the grievances of these farmers. They just did their part, voted on and debated what they wanted to, and went on with their lives. When this happens, the people of Massachusetts who feel inclined to fight this say this is no different than what we just got done fighting with the British. We have taxation, but clearly, because no one even mentioned it, we don't have representation. And we know how these people feel about no taxation without representation. They just showed you. It doesn't matter what your new flag says. It doesn't matter what your new country looks like. They fought for these principles once. They're going to fight for them again. At this point, some of the greatest and most powerful officials, politicians, and figures who drafted the Declaration of Independence and helped found the United States have gone into retirement, and rightfully so. One of them, you probably know the guy, was George Washington. Washington believed he did his part. He had all the power in the world. He gave it up to retire on his plantation. But when this starts going on in Massachusetts... It becomes a very troubling idea to him because he knows how rebellions like this happen and he knows how quickly they can spread. He had friends like Henry Lee, David Humphreys, Henry Knox, who kept him abreast of the situation. General Washington, we know you're retired, but you might want to keep an eye on this. When that Massachusetts legislature ends their session without dealing with these issues, the entire state begins to fall apart. One of these Revolutionary War veterans, and the man whose name will ultimately be attached to this rebellion, is named Daniel Shays. Now, we call it Shays Rebellion historically. The name of the episode is Shays Rebellion. If you go in Massachusetts today, there's plaques and markers, Shays Rebellion, and there's no doubt that Shays was part of it. Um, But I think... There were other people who had equal say in the movement. I don't want to say people had more. Very few men, if any, had more say than Daniel Shays. But this was not the kind of rebellion that pops up behind the leadership of one guy. This is a big movement. It's an organic movement. Uh, And it's very hard to assign that to the personality of one person. But Daniel Shays is the name you should know. Uh, The men who begin to arm themselves uh, in Massachusetts begin begin to call themselves regulators, and you know why. 
20 years earlier in North Carolina, we saw the regulator movement. They're not the rebels, they're not the revolutionaries, they're the regulators. They're not fighting to end the government or challenge the government. They're fighting to make sure the government is doing the job it's supposed to, the regulation. And again, they take to that notion of blocking courthouses, physically stopping hearings from going down um, in order to save the farms. And when you got a bunch of maniacs, by the way, outside of a courthouse with guns and and farming equipment they're using as weapons, and you're a justice or you are a, a tax collector, you ain't going anywhere near that place. And this is how it sort of works out. That is a, a form of populist tyranny uh, that is not a recipe for success. And everybody there knows it. If this is going to go anywhere, it's going to have to come to blows. Washington, again in Virginia, uh, is being kept abreast of all of this. He fought quite a bit to earn this country. He wasn't going to let it be taken from him. He says very famously in a letter to David Humphreys, quote, Commotions of this sort, like snowballs, gather strength as they roll. If there is no opposition in the way to divide and crumble them. So clearly he understands how difficult this gets. And it falls upon not the United States Army, because there isn't one, uh, not the National Guard, because they don't exist, and not the U.S. Navy, because it's not there either. All of these things are basically impossible based on the framework of government we have as a nation, the Articles of Confederation. It's a states' rights bonanza. So if Massachusetts has a problem, Massachusetts has to deal with it. They can ask for help. The state militias of Virginia or New York or Pennsylvania could help if they're so inclined. But there's such a fear of overarching tyrannical government at this point that the U.S. government can't even rally all of its troops together into one. The new governor of Massachusetts, as we mentioned, is James Bowden. James Bowden is not John Hancock. James Bowden wants to see this money collected. He wants his state to be fi fiscally sound. He wants its residents to pay its debts. And he knows that if these rebels are really going to make a push, they're mostly farmers, at taking over the state, they're going to need weapons. And the place you get that is the Federal Armory in Springfield, Mass. He knows they're going to go there. He knows they're going to try and get the guns inside. He knows that would put them in a position of strength and bargaining. So he'll call upon uh, a former general in the Continental Army named Benjamin Lincoln. Lincoln is famous for fighting down south in the American Revolution. And he'll call upon a force of 1,200 militiamen to go to that armory under the command of Lincoln and meet Daniel Shays. They get in position. By the way, most of them are paid and funded by the merchants of the East in places like Boston, Plymouth, and Salem. So, as an aside, you already have this divide between East and West in the state. Most of these rebels are farmers from the West who dislike the Eastern mercantile class anyway, but now that same mercantile class is literally funding the soldiers that are going to be shooting at them. I mean, you have to see how this is playing out, right? And it's all going to go down here at the Springfield Armory. This will be January 25th, 
1787. It's cold out. It's snowy. It is not a time when armies should be marching or fighting. But this is not a traditional war. This is a rebellion. Daniel Shays, with a few others, are at the helm. Shays will arrive at the armory with 1,500 men under his command. Facing off again against 1,200 put there by the state of Massachusetts. The fight begins when the uh, army under Lincoln fires shots with artillery, killing four of the rebels and wounding 20. Uh, it's an artillery barrage. The rebel force will fire back, but after the heat's really put on by the official military of Massachusetts, Daniel Shays and his rebels flee for the countryside. And from there, you guys know how this goes, they're rounded up, they're arrested, and most of them are pardoned. Shays will actually escape the state altogether, if you can believe this, and he'll go into the green hills of Vermont. Because at that time, Vermont's actually its own independent country. It's trying to be recognized by the United States, but it's not quite there yet. Uh, it's a republic of its own. And he will go hide in the green mountains and hills uh, for safety. He will eventually be pardoned. He will come back uh, to the to the state of Massachusetts. But here's what's really important about this whole thing. It sounds like an isolated incident. It sounds like it's a Massachusetts problem, not really an American problem. Uh, and it sounds like it just sort of came and went. But the reality is, and George Washington knew this, it could have been so much more if it wasn't tamped down and handled the right way. He will write to Henry Knox, former commander of his in the Revolution, that, quote, On the prospect of the happy termination of this insurrection, I sincerely congratulate you, hoping that, many, hoping that good may result from the clouds of evils which threatened not only the hemisphere of Massachusetts, but by spreading its baneful influence, the tranquility of the Union. This small event became the biggest topic of conversation in the year 1787 of any. Everybody was talking about Shays' Rebellion because they knew and they saw if it can happen there, it can happen here in North Carolina or here in Virginia or here in Rhode Island. It almost did, in fact. Uh, or here in Pennsylvania. They knew it could happen. And they also knew that if this country was going to survive, it needed to have a document, a framework of government, worthy of its cause. Because the Articles of Confederation, despite the climate of fear in which they were uh, constructed in, were no longer sufficient to see this through. You needed, in 1787, a constitution. Whenever it was decided this constitution would come down, and be devised and developed and debated that year in Philadelphia. It also brought the big dog back. It brought George Washington out of retirement, back into the fray of politics, because he wanted to see, if we're going to do this, we need to do it right. Because he had a feeling this document would be around for a long time. So Shays' Rebellion not only... Uh, 
reveals the inherent problems and inadequacies and difficulties that the Articles of Confederation bring upon this country, but it reinvigorates and restarts the political life of George Washington, and of course he becomes our first president shortly after. If there is no Shays' Rebellion, I don't know if we see that. Now, it's very difficult to draw one direct line. It's part of the reason that in history we debate and we interpret. But I think it makes a very good case why Shays' Rebellion uh, is one of the most important events in the early history of our republic. It reminds us that winning the revolution sometimes could be viewed as the easy part. Keeping the revolution and the wonderful republic and the democratic spirit that we still spread around the world today, 240 years later, was the hard part. I'm very, very much looking forward to the rest of this season. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.